Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first Unchained Live, sponsored by Quantstamp. Thank you for joining us. And now, please welcome to the stage, host of Unchained, Laura Shin. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to have you all here at the first Unchained Live. Your no-hype resource for all things crypto is on stage at Pulitzer Hall, Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. For those who don't know, Unchained is my weekly hour-long podcast that covers all things crypto, and in a few months, it will be three years old. When I started this podcast, I never, ever imagined that it would become something big enough where I could hold an event like this. So I really, really appreciate you all for listening to the show and for coming tonight. It's also really meaningful to me to be doing this event here at Columbia Journalism School because I came here for grad school 11 years ago. And at that time, kind of like my podcast, I never imagined I would someday be doing an event in this Mm -hmm. very building. And hilariously, until tonight, my main memory of this particular floor in the building is that on the night of graduation, my friends and I all had a dance party in the room at the other side of the the hall. So um, now I'm making new memories in this space. Want to advance your career? Columbia University School of Professional Studies has master's programs in fields like applied analytics, which includes a blockchain elective and enterprise risk management. Complete your degree online or online and in person in New York City or San Francisco. Apply at sps.columbia.edu slash podcast. Within months, cryptocurrency anti-money laundering regulations go global. Are you ready? Avoid stiff penalties or blacklisting by deploying effective anti-money laundering tools for exchanges and crypto businesses, the same tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. Have the confidence that your decentralized system works as intended. Quantstamp is a full-stack blockchain security company that helps you ship safe code. For Unchained listeners, we're offering 5% off a smart contract security audit until the end of June. Head to quantstamp.com unchained to claim your discount. Our guest for today is one of crypto's biggest stars, one of its biggest leaders, who himself started in this space as a journalist. Please give a warm welcome to Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum. Welcome, Vitalik. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for coming out to New York for this. I really appreciate it. So I'm going to jump right into questions. Normally in journalism, if you're an editor, they say you should give your comments to writers in what's called a nice sandwich. Mm -hmm. And you could apply that concept to 
to interviews, but unfortunately I'm going to have to dispense with the nice parts in the beginning because I really want to get to the meat of the conversation. We have a very limited time. So my first question is kind of like a question that's actually for you and for the audience. And actually what we're going to do to tee up the questions, we're going to play a video. And it's a video, I think you've probably seen it. Uh, and some, some may have seen it, but for those who haven't, it's a video of Fred Wilson at Union Square Ventures in conversation with Tushar Jain of Multicoin Capital at the Multicoin Capital Summit. And I think Fred's view here is representative of a lot of people's, that it's not just his opinion. But you can see he has kind of a lot of emotion about where Ethereum is right now. So for the audience, my question for you is uh, you'll watch the video, and then we're going to go to this website called Slido, which is sli.do. Um, some of you may have actually pre-submitted questions there earlier, and you'll enter the code UNCHAINED where you can answer this poll. And the question is, you know, do you agree with what Fred Wilson is saying here, which is, uh, is Ethereum losing its lead? So again, that's Slido, SLI.do, and you'll enter the code UNCHAINED to answer the poll. So let's uh, play this video. And just for context, at the beginning, he's talking about strong executive leadership. And we do that a lot um, for our companies. Um, Ethereum needs that, right? We know that Vitalik is not CEO. Vitalik is an evangelist. He's a brilliant computer scientist. But like Ethereum should be more like a company, right? Like they, like you look at what EOS is doing, and you look at what Ethereum is doing, and it's like, you know, if Ethereum was doing what EOS was doing, they'd be crushing it. But they're not, and they don't have enough money. Um, uh, they don't have enough. Developers, they don't, you know, they're not, they're, their go-to-market strategy is non-existent. Like, they're not behaving like a company. And if, if, the, if all of us who own Ethereum could go to Vitalik and say, you know, look, this thing you got going in Switzerland, it's not working. Fire these fuckers who, who don't know what the hell they're doing and put somebody great in there who could help you build this thing into a monster. Like, that's what we would do. I don't know how to do that. Like, how do you, you know, like there's no mechanism to do that. That's... That's painful. Just sitting there holding the asset, just watching them whittle it the value away. And you're like, God damn it. You know, I know what to do here. You know, just look at it. Every great company has done this. Just do that. And, yeah. they, and they don't do it. And it's hard to get them to listen, right? Because, like, first of all, who do you have to convince? Right? In this case, like, maybe it's Vitalik, but there's a whole decentralized group of developers, et cetera, um, that, that need to be convinced. And like this is exactly kind of the, the question that, that we're trying to think of. Is well, if they think if that whole group thinks that they're killing it, mm -hmm. then they then they got their head up their ass. Okay, they're not killing it; they're blowing it. They right? have the lead, and they're blowing it. Yep. And it's just like it's so obvious what to do, and they're not doing it. That. So okay. Uh, if you are in the audience and uh, on the live stream, go to sli.do. And, uh, you know, vote on, for this poll. But we're not going to share the results because what I want is I want Vitalik to uh, give us your response to what he's saying in this video. Yeah, I mean, I guess, first of all, like, if Bitcoin was run like a business, would it have succeeded? And I feel like we kind of intuitively know the answer. And so... It, like it's definitely a structure that works for some things, but like blockchains and cryptocurrency and all those uh, all of those things that come with that package are just fundamentally kind of so much more and kind of so different from a kind of traditional company or 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 a software product 
So I'm really not at all sure that like that kind of uh, of model is anywhere close to the right model. Um, so in terms of like what our model is, right? Like I mean, we've definitely had these discussions inside of the foundation, and there's definitely been people from time to time that just said, "Yeah, we need to go in with guns blazing and fire those bastards, and then you know get the forty people in and like stick them in the middle of some NIMBYtopia in Silicon Valley and get them to pay ten thousand dollars a month of rent, get them to work for sixteen hours every day, rah rah rah, six months, and like we got Ethereum 3.0, man." And, like, no. <laughs> I mean, the, uh, like, I would say rather that, I mean, Bitcoin succeeded in large part because it adopted a model that's uh, very, very, very different from that. And we've been uh, you know, adopting a model that's very different from that. Though, I mean, at the same time, look, one of the things that we did is... Um, for the our 2.0 strategy, right? We have this approach where you know, the foundation is not the thing in the middle that's building everything. The yeah, foundation is, you know, it is being a hub for place for things that need a hub. Like for example, writing out a hub and spe- uh, writing out the spec and uh, specifying it, bringing it to completion. But then the work on uh, making 2.0 implementations is kind of distributed among you know Prismatic Labs and Lighthouse and Consensus and these other companies. And you know these other companies internally can be kind of structured in very different ways, and they, uh, you know, some of them could be could be based in one place, some in another place. They might have different kinds of people in them, and really, if even a couple of them succeed, then you know, if you're at least the software implementations of Ethereum 2.0 exist and it's developed. And from a scaling point of view, you know, like as some of our community members in public have said, even if Ethereum 2.0 is never developed, there's Ethereum 1.x, there's ZK Rollup, there's Channels, there's Plasma. And but, yeah, but and so you're you're kind of taking issue with yeah. his framing of, you know, Yeah, like I guess the point I'm trying to make is that there like there is a kind of focused and deep approach to doing things and there is a broad approach to doing things and we definitely are explicitly taking the broad approach to doing things and I'd argue it's like a very good one for things like Bitcoin and Ethereum. But so just because, you know, we've got this poll going to, I'm just curious, do mm-hmm. you feel like Ethereum is losing its lead or, or no? Is that just... And it's definitely lost, lost uh, some lead to some extent. And I think that's just because, like, if you're, first, I mean, it, it's kind of inevitable and unavoidable because Ethereum, like, really was the first to... Uh, general purpose smart contract thing to try to do anything and and, uh, Bitcoin for example was the first cryptocurrency and originally as far as cryptocurrencies go it had 100% market share then went to 95 and then now it's around 51 and as industries mature and markets grow over time there's more projects and more projects that try to do different things and that's you know, people learn over time that there's like more different models that you could try, and there's different projects that are trying different models, and that's part of the like, that part's an inevitable part of the process. I mean, Simply because the space is so new. Yeah, because the space is so new, and because the space is just becoming less new over time. All right, so let's just quickly look at the results. I'm just curious to know. 
Mm-hmm. So, okay, so actually people mostly strongly disagree mm-hmm. that Ethereum is losing. Okay, so good. That's good because um, you from some of the uh, behavior yeah. I'm seeing on Twitter, I wondered about that. Um, although, mm-hmm. honestly, to be fair, this is yeah. probably an audience that's very friendly to you. Um, <laughs> so one other, one other thing that I wanted to ask, though, about this kind of competition aspect is, like, Ethereum has always been kind of very unicorns and rainbows when it came to other blockchains. Like, mm-hmm. you had Zcash and Eternity and p- perhaps even other blockchain teams at DEF CON 4. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we're seeing this new movement, I guess, really, in Ethereum, where uh, recently Ethereum core developer Afri Shodan tweeted... Polkadot delivers what Serenity ought to be, changed my mind, and he was attacked on social media and actually mm-hmm. driven out of Ethereum. Mm-hmm. I've had other people express anxiety uh, to me about Polkadot, mm-hmm. presumably because it could make Ethereum one of like many parachains, you know, instead of mm-hmm. Ethereum being sure. a launchpad. There's also worries about substrate. I mean, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of things going on. So right now, you know, here we are, you're trying to build this thing that it's not going to be done for a couple of years. Meanwhile, Polkadot and some of these other potentially competitive blockchains mm-hmm. are either launching soon or have recently launched. So do you worry that like your roadmap is too long compared to where they are in, in their development? And I would say, first of all, that like pretty much every project is like, generally optimistic about what... Uh, about what they say they're going to do. So, like for example, even you know the big like Bitcoin sidechains. Remember back in uh, 2014, like three months after the initial announcements, when uh, Bitcoin sidechains were the thing that was going to kill Ethereum. Right. It was yeah. like the first of the uh, you no, know, it was like the first of the Ethereum killers, and like people were saying, yeah, Ethereum doesn't need to exist anymore. And then now, what do we have? Well, there's like one side chain, which is basically like a permission consortium chain between exchanges. Yes. So it's um, like things definitely like all of these things are harder than they seem. And even after launch, like things are harder than they seem. And like a lot of the problems that we see that uh, are also problems that all these other projects are going to see. So, so, you, so you're not worried about like Polkadot or so like, like I'm definitely not worried about them kind of, you know, replacing Ethereum or any of those kind of more more extreme versions. Like basically because like I do think that like building like Ethereum isn't just like a technical thing. There's also an ecosystem to build out, there's tools other than a blockchain, there's a community to build, there's all these things that like do really take a significant amount of time. Um, and, and, but why do you think this like strain of Ethereum maximalism is emerging? Like literally on my way over here, I saw that mm-hmm. too. Taylor Monaghan had a tweet yeah. about it earlier today too. Mm-hmm. Like, wh- you know, why is it yeah. happening, and what do you think of it? Hmm. Yeah, it definitely is. Like in general, I think I forget where I made this comment, but it, it might have been in some conversation with Tyler Cohen or somewhere else. I made this comment that people are at their most evil not out of greed but out of fear, and. That was, um, it is probably true that, you know, there's a new wave of, like, people making noises about how they'll, uh, like, basically kill Ethereum, and there's, like, that does lead to, like, people who, uh, being afraid and, be, and people kind of taking, t- taking that not too well. I mean, that definitely isn't something that, like, I definitely really want to wish and hope that the Ethereum community can kind of find a 
or a way to interact with uh, these other crypto projects that are uh, that are emerging that's uh, not kind of crypto ma- or not ethereum maximalist or not maximalist in general in the kind of horrible ways and connotations that that word has though I mean at the same time there's also this kind of other opposite current where people are I, I think there's some people that are worried that because we have this kind of anti-maximalist culture that basically is the reason why like in the ethereum space like people just immediately call like basically call other community members out for being maximalist as opposed which isn't something that normal like, that happens at all in many other crypto communities mm-hmm. and like basically there's there's this kind of countercurrent where there's other people who basically believe that the anti-maximalists are kind of being played for chumps, like they're playing cooperate when other people are playing defect in the prisoner's dilemma. And like that might be true sometimes, might not be true sometimes, but it's something that we need to kind of probably carefully consider consider and evaluate on a case-by-case basis. But so what is your take on competition? Like, would you be upset if there was another, uh, you know, competing blockchain that took the lead? Like, how, how would you personally feel about that? I'm curious. It depends which blockchain. Like, <laughs> like I think, like, I mean, you like, you know, like, I'm not afraid to, like, shit on projects I think are terrible, right? So if Tron overtakes Ethereum, then, first of all, continue to believe it to build on Ethereum because I believe that, you know, the world and humanity needs to have a decentralized platform. And second, I will have lost a certain amount of hope for humanity, but not all, not, not, not nearly all. So if it's some more... I mean, if it's some like very com- like re- reasonable and very competent technical platform, then and ultimately I hope to find ways to have kind of positive, some and collaborative relationships with these projects as much as possible. And and I've like I feel like the Ethereum community has shown that it's capable of doing that. Like for example, it's had very positive relationship with Zcash pretty much since the beginning. Um, it's uh, you know, e- relations are even warming with um, Ethereum Classic recently. And even uh, I, mean, I don't know if you've seen the recent Peace Bridge projects. There's um, I mean, even in Bitcoin Cash like tend, tends to be fair, fairly friendly, especially now that it's uh, basically kind of um, exercised its big demon within. Um, talking about Craig Wright. Yes. Um, you see, I'm not afraid to criticize. Um, the um, yeah. So I guess like the ideal outcome for me definitely is like I've said anti-maximalist things in general. Like when uh, when the maximalists were just Bitcoin maximalists, and I really do be- like do believe in my heart that like I want to see an environment where different approaches to to things can thrive and prosper and and Ethereum can win and other projects that that, that do interesting things can win too. And if we can find that way, I think that that really would be best. But like if that can't, and if that, if that can't happen and Ethereum like is like 
ends up just being much less much less relevant because people switch from it to other technologies. I definitely like much rather it be some like some competence technical chain than like one of these scam projects. All right. So one other thing I wanted to ask about this video was um, back when this was circulating on Twitter. Um, somebody tagged you in some tweet mm-hmm. related to it, and um, Preston Van Loon of Prismatic Labs, mm-hmm. uh, which is creating a sharding client for Ethereum 2.0, tweeted, or he responded to it, saying that he and others on his team were struggling to deliver because they still had to work these full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who missed mm-hmm. it, Vitalik wrote back YOLO and sent him, uh, sent Prismatic a thousand ETH, and then that was uh, what enabled them to quit their full-time jobs, or at least uh, yeah. Preston, and he runs Prismatic full-time now. But, you know, so I saw this happen, but also we've got these Ethereum core developers that have been telling me, you know, they're working on some of the most essential aspects of Ethereum, but they're underfunded. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes their salaries are at like maybe 60% of what they would be if they were working in a startup mm-hmm. as a developer. Um, and it, even with a startup, they'd also get equity. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, they watched the Ethereum Foundation give, you know, like $4 million to Starkware, which mm-hmm. is a competing blockchain. So well, how Starkware you- is not a competing blockchain. Oh, okay. No, it's just, it's a company that's just building ZK Stark technology. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. But, it, but is that still like something that you would give a higher priority to compared to some of the core mm. Ethereum teams? Because for them, they feel like, whoa, where, you know, how are these funding priorities being set? Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, those are definitely very reasonable questions to ask. Um, I think it's also important to recognize this sort of, in the context of the history of the kind of foundation and its uh, kind of funding capacities and some of the inefficiencies in its funding capacities. So like, for example, you know, we had back during the sale, we had $18 million and that $18 million quickly turned into nine because we weren't able to turn it into, into a cash quickly enough. And just because of a kind of quite spendy culture that some people in the foundation had early on. The nine kind of whittled down to one fairly quickly. But then fortunately, you know, the Ethereum launched, the foundation had its Ether, and that made it adopt this kind of very careful and cautious attitude toward uh, funding, like pretty much uh, funding anything. And so our expenditures were pretty low, but then the Ether price just suddenly shot up by a factor of literally more than a thousand. And like our norms definitely uh, kind of didn't ad- adjust kind of as quickly as the realities did. And then there was another correction. And at the start of last year, like we announced this big grant program. And the goal of that was to basically, it's kind of like a triage project to just identify the biggest categories of things that were not getting funded that just needed to start getting funded. So some of the earliest stuff included the like, L4 state channel stuff. It included like uh, some of the um, ETH2 client teams. It included some plasma projects. It included some other things. It included these big academic grants, and I mean, those things really did need uh, d- did need to be funded. And now, more recently, of course, there's this uh, you know the in the price went down by a factor of ten again, and in. In part because like we uh, didn't um, end up kind of getting out getting out of hand and like actually adjusting our spending up by a factor of a thousand, like we uh, you know, have not had to do any rounds of layoffs. We had I mean, we haven't had to kind of do any of those things. So some but, of this is like 
kind of yeah, organizational. In, like it sounds like I saw you tweeting about how mm-hmm. people could be paid via smart contracts in a, right. a very flexible way. We you, maybe that's something you guys should look at. Yeah, I mean, we, there's definitely a kind of internal experimentation happening. Like the like part of the benefit of this sort of. Ethereum core foundation structure that's not a corporation that we've developed over time is that there's a lot of kind of little projects and little experiments happening inside of them. So like I, I think like AFSA's team like some like some of them have been getting paid and die, and then there's people getting paid with these like with these channel mechanisms. There's uh, you know then there's grants, there's salaries, there's like all all of these. Uh, you know, d- different scales of things. There's trials, like what we call it hack turnships and, and okay. but, a bunch of other things. But just, yeah. you know, to go back, like, mm-hmm. you know, in general, I feel like from what I've learned from some interviews is that there are people working on this who feel like, mm-hmm. hey, that's how true. are these priorities being set? And so it sounds to me yeah, like there's probably room for improvement, at least and, from yeah. their perspective. There, you know, there definitely is, though I think... Uh, I mean, like I don't. Whoever said that, I don't. Like I don't know their spe- their uh, specific situation. But it's also important to remember that, like, especially like during the periods where like you're adjust- adjusting downwards, like the uh, if if nobody's complaining, that means you're overpaying, basically, uh. and that's yes, yes. Well, yeah. okay. So let so let's keep talking actually about this specific topic because there's been a new development mm-hmm. where, um, as you probably know, there's this new decentralized autonomous organization called Molotov. Mm-hmm. For those of you who missed it, my episode that came out on Tuesday was great about this, like super interesting. But essentially, Molotov is a DAO where, vo- where where members will be voted in. And upon acceptance, they receive these shares that give them the ability to vote on different proposals that will help further Ethereum 2.0 development. Mm-hmm. What's your take on Molotov? It's definitely an interesting experiment. Um, and it's, first of all, like I'm really glad to see like, people in the community and you know, taking charge and uh, just making these independent pushes to kind of promote, like, push Ethereum and the Ethereum ecosystem forward in uh, the different ways that they think, uh, they think make sense. Like, I think that's valuable both because we have the kind of benefit of these uh, different philosophies getting tried. Uh, we, it also means that, you know, if, the Ethereum Foundation does have like institutional constraints. A lot of the time, like these, a lot of these other organizations or DAOs or whatever don't have them, where they have different constraints, and so they can kind of fill in some of our gaps. So I think all of those things are good. Um, the one big kind of challenge um, that I see is that, like, ultimately these kind of nonprofit DAOs are still like just. Like basically a way of organizing charity spending, and yeah, like they can provide some impro- some improvements, but you know ultimately this kind of public goods problem that basically people are throwing money into things that benefit way more people than just themselves, and so they're like unless they're really really altruistic, they're gonna put in kind of far too little money to actually. Like basically far far less money than kind of would be would be optimal if ever if uh, if everyone sort of had ever kind of had everyone's interests in mind. 
then like basically like the DAO by itself doesn't just magically make these like public goods problems and tragedies of the commons go away. And so the like there's definitely and I'm very grateful to all of the people that have contributed to Moloch DAO, but at the same time like Moloch DAO by itself is still in and I don't expect it to, you know, balloon into like base like EOS sized like pools of money that can go and do like the the kinds of things that uh, people that, w- that that want us to have EOS-sized like EOS spending want, want us to do. Yeah, 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 no, I think that's true because, like, the mm. actual DAO was something where people were expecting a return, yeah. but this is, like, again, uh, it's going to have that free rider problem where, you know, other people in the community will, will be like, mm. okay, they want to put their money in to fund ETH 2.0 development, fine. Have the confidence that your decentralized system works as intended. Quantstamp is a full-stack blockchain security company that helps you ship safe code. Companies like SharesPost, Chainlink, Crypto.com, and Omiseko Plasma trust Quantstamp. We have research partners like NUS, MIT, and MythX, as well as a book on smart contract security being released this spring. Our team of engineers and security professionals Take pride in staying on the cutting edge of this dynamic industry. For Unchained listeners, we're offering 5% off a smart contract security audit until the end of June. Head to quantstamp.com unchained to claim your discount. That's quantstamp.com unchained to get 5% off your next audit. Face it, regulations can stall or kill a fast-moving crypto business. New FAFT and EU cryptocurrency AML laws are coming soon. You could be hit with stiff fines or blacklisted, no matter where your servers are in the world. Prepare now. Deploy the same powerful cipher trace tools used by regulators. Protect your assets, streamline your compliance programs, and keep your exchange or crypto business out of the regulator's crosshairs. Learn how effective anti-money laundering tools help keep your crypto business safe and trusted. Learn more at cyphertrace.com slash unchained. Cyphertrace is securing the crypto economy. Looking to take your career to the next level? At Columbia University's School of Professional Studies, you'll find full-time and part-time master's programs in high-demand fields like applied analytics, which includes a blockchain elective, and enterprise risk management. Flexible formats let you complete your degree online or through a combination of online and in-person study in New York City or San Francisco. Advance your career. Accelerate your impact. Apply now for fall 2019. Visit sps.columbia.edu slash podcast. Um, but one other thing I want to ask about was there's this other idea floating around, which is inflation funding for development. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Zcash does it, where mm-hmm. 20% of the block reward goes to fund such a development. What do you think of that idea? Yeah, and I did read the um, EIP. I think was it eighteen sixty seven or like some like number in that range that was re- released today. It's interesting that people are starting to discuss it. I mean, I think probably two of the big challenges to that. I mean, one of them is kind of just political, which is the community. I think hasn't fully decided like how it feels about the yeah, kind of governance making. Like subjective economic decisions on that level of subjectiveness, 
And like, so for example, the Bitcoin community would definitely be hard against this sort of thing. Like they'd even be hard against redirecting parts of the existing block reward, even if, even if it keeps the cap to uh, things like this, because, you know, they would say, oh, it's centralization, it's taxes, and like these things are evil and all that. Now, on the other hand, you have projects that like, take the opposite extreme and like, basically like, use just use on-chain governance to uh, like push out, push out inflation uh, uh, rewards to projects. And I've written articles about like how this can easily like this is just fundamentally not incentive compatible. It can lead to plutocracy. It can lead to cartels. And I think it might even be possible to make a kind of a, almost a mathematical theorem that basically says something like in an anonymous system it's impossible to create a system that funds public goods without creating a system that rewards cartels. And the reason is that there's just no way for an anonymous system to distinguish between $10 million of coins split between 10,000 people that are struggling to overcome free rider problems versus $10 million that are split between 10,000 accounts that are all owned by the same cartel. That's just one guy trying to funnel more money to themselves. And that's... You know, we in the case of um, EOS, for example, you know, we saw these uh, scandals about oh, you got these delegates, and then they're voting for each for uh, for each other, and then they're voting in exchange for payments, and all of these things that kind of technically break voting systems if you analyze the economics. And like, I do worry about that kind of capture if we make a system that's kind of formalized in in the wrong way. Now, in the middle, basically, there's- it's like gamifiable. Yeah, I mean, in the middle there's like Zcash, but then Zcash is interest is um, interesting. It's in definitely like big big props to them for just doing that and being proud of that and saying like, yeah, you know, we got a we got a twenty percent dev tax. You know, what's up, man? And that I am very proud of them for doing for 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 doing that. So you know, great job, Zuko. But on the other hand, like they clearly haven't solved the problem of like where to allocate the money because right now they just like basically just have this centralized uh, allocation pool that you know goes to the Zcash company, it goes to these individuals and these other individuals, and they have hard forks, and then these hard forks they can decide to reallocate the pool. But then, what process do they use to decide? And so. It is like it's definitely very far from kind of the ideals that a lot of people see uh, cryptocurrencies having, and I mean like that's not this, definitely very far from saying Zcash is bad or anything. Like so it's still a big it, it's still an improvement over no funding, but you know centralized funding is still like it would be really nice if there was some decentralized process for achieving the same thing. Now, in terms of decentralized processes, I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, you know Glenn Wiles, like, uh, like CLR, quadratic finance mechanism. Yeah. And Can you describe that for people? Um, he was yeah. on the show too, by the way. That was a great episode. You guys should listen to that. Yeah. So basically, the um, idea here is that it's a kind, it's a kind of uh, spin on one of Glenn's earlier ideas, which is quadratic voting, which is a method for voting which like, base, takes into account the you know, the, the strengths of uh, of people's preferences. And like under certain conditions, you can prove that like basically, if A wins a quadratic vote over B, then A is. Uh, like, 
like on balance, like like basically A makes people like people altogether happier than B would, and the way that um, liberal uh, radical uh, radical subsidies work is that you have this mechanism where anyone can like put in a pool, like, you know, put in some money toward projects, and then for each project, there is a set of people that pull, that put money into it. And then the way it works mathematically is that you take each person's contribution, then you take the square root of each person's contribution, then you add all of those square roots up, and you take the square and you take the square of that sum. And then the different the square of the sum of the square roots is bigger than just a regular sum, and pretty much always if there's more than one contributor. So you have some like central funding source, like basically cover the difference. The way that it works kind of more philosophically, like, you know, you might ask, well, why square roots, why squares, why sums, is that you can think of it as a mechanism that, like, basically through the amount of money that each person contributes kind of measures, like, basically how much they care about uh, about the project and in a certain mathematical sense. And then the mechanism itself imagines if there existed a kind of virtual agent that cared as much as all of the all of the contributors that care put together, then if how much and that virtual agent was the one that had um, that had a lot of money to contribute, then how, uh, how much money would they contribute? And that amount is going to be is always going to be more than the amount that people contribute in isolation because this kind of virtual agent that cares as much as all the contributors put together is sort of one agent and doesn't kind of have free rider problems with itself. So it's like it's really cool math, but the general principle is that it's this uh, way of, like if you have a pool of money that is kind of designated toward funding kind of public goods as a category, then it allows you to choose like which public goods to fund and how much in a way that is kind of credibly neutral, like credibly kind of not biased towards specific, towards specific organizations. And would you think about using that to experiment with, you know, inflation funding? Yeah, I mean, so we are, uh, Gitcoin is is uh, using it right now. And uh, I think it started in the first round, in my opinion, went really well, and it started the second round recently. The main impediment I see to just pumping Ethereum inflation uh, directly into, into a CLR is um, that CLR does um, depend on some notion of identity. Um, so you know, basically the reason is, once again, like how do you distinguish between 10,000 people that are suffering from like a free rider problem versus 10,000 sock puppets of the same, uh, the same like, rich guy? Right. And like, fake accounts are really easy to get. Like, if you have a phone right now, if you go to buyaxe.com, you can just like, buy like, piles of Gmail and Reddit accounts. Like, just go ahead and look and try. Like, it's, like, Is this something you've tried? No comment. Um, um, no, like the point, like basic, like it's important to kind of not be naive about this because you know we're like there are in like regardless of what any of us uh, like know, there's know or try to do. There's entire industries of people who like spend their 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 lives like as a. And as a full-time job, like figuring out how to like grab up these accounts and automate them, and then if they rely on cell phones and they have those cell phone racks and they hook them up and like they simulate like uh, clicking buttons and like I mean this is like you know there's PR firms that do this. This is like basically a, 
There's crypto teams that do this. Crypto people. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm. What like did, did hacking team and do any of that? I mean, I have no idea. I, I don't yeah. know. I don't know. But yeah. uh, I mean, so yeah. yeah the, basically, the point uh, the point is that like if you d- don't have an identity system that's robust, then eventually you're going to have like a guy with uh, ten thousand sock puppet, puppet accounts taking over this kind of system and using it to drain money. And so this does depend on a robust identity system, and it also depends on like, um, collusion resistance, which is the term I use for like, mechanisms where you don't have the ability to prove how you participated to anyone else. And the reason why that's important is because if you don't have that property, then you can like really easily bribe people to participate in some way with smart contracts. Like you can, yeah. You know, like if you imagine for like, uh, like for votes, like it's easy, like the idea of uh, buying votes is probably familiar to people. But this applies to like any kind of mechanism, right? Even like with a CLR, for example, right? Like if if I throw in ten dollars, then I get you know, like ten dollars square square root three point one six, whatever, and then square again up to ten. But then if you were to throw in one dollar, then three uh, my ten dollars get square rooted three point one six, add to yours four point one six, and then the result would be somewhere between uh, 17 and 18 and so then like your one dollar adds seven point like somewhere between over seven dollars to the total pie and so that would mean is that if you could prove how you voted and that was malicious then i would bribe you three dollars to throw one dollar into the pot you would earn two dollars and i would still earn more than a five dollar profit so like these attacks exist, and there are like, worldwide industries that are dedicated to exploiting them. So we need to be careful. All right. Yeah. So all this, if if you ever mm. end up implementing it, it sounds like it's going to be way down the line because I know there's other things on your to do list that are higher up. Um, so let's move on. Um, one other thing. So we were talking about Molly Dow. Uh, one other thing that came out of this interview I did with Amin, who uh, founded mm-hmm. Molly Dow. Amin Soleimani, by the way, uh, for those of you who don't know him. Um, he believes that the Ethereum community should put a greater emphasis on the price of Ether because of its role in securing the network, mm-hmm. especially under proof of stake. Mm-hmm. And did you see that Delphi Digital report? Yes. Yeah, that was super interesting. If you guys missed it, incredible report. But basically, they talked about how the upgrade to Serenity would rely too much on fees and that kind of put the security of the network at risk. And they showed how, like, in a number of scenarios, it really wouldn't be very profitable for validators. So, um, do you think the price of Ether is important? And how much you think about that while you're designing the protocol and working on mm-hmm. things like fees, block rewards, staking, inflation, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be like really, really candid because that's the right thing. I think like a lot of the, at least some of the earlier um, kind of rhetoric of like, especially veering on the more extreme side of like the price not mattering at all. Um, came, I mean, in part, it was kind of counter signaling to like distinguish ourselves from other crypto projects that just care about that, just like, do like pumping and lambling way, way too much. But another thing is that it's, uh, it was about kind of minimizing um, legal risk by basically say, uh, and like basically trying to kind of make the project seem like be seem more distant from like something that would be covered by financial regulation. And I think um, more recently, it's um, like, I think at this point, um, you know, like people and regulators know what cryptocurrencies are and um, they know that it's, um, 
good you know, you know they have a price they uh, there's a there's a cryptocurrency these prices go up and down and there's these networks and these networks you know you can build applications on them and uh, these applications provide a lot of value to people and they um like even like if people try to claim the price doesn't matter at all like they're they're totally going to see through that right so it's um like i so definitely how much does it matter to you if it definitely I mean, I can I can tell you why I like what things are clearly important about the uh, why the 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 price being higher rather rather than lower for example is good right so one of them is obviously security so if the price is zero the network can't be secure and that's true in proof of work or proof of stake um, another reason is obviously that there's a lot of projects um, who in the ecosystem that hold cryptocurrency and they um, either like and if the price is higher then they'll have more money to do thing, uh, to do the things that they want to do right and like these are things that are just ob- like obvious and you can like it, it's just obvious from looking from looking on the internet that the like, crypto projects hold a lot of their money out of their money in cryptocurrency and they'll be better funded if the if uh, prices go up right, but like so- from a network point of view also I know security is just and is just an important uh, kind of thing like basically if prices drop to zero then there's no way there's no way that security can happen so i think like in terms of kind of descriptively explaining like why people do care and it's a it's obviously a combination of those things and then there's people that hold cryptocurrency and they want prices to uh, go uh to go up yeah sometimes but, i think that's what the maximalists are. yeah definitely and but i think like those are i mean like Especially the kind of security or concern is definitely just a totally legitimate technical argument. And there are members of the Ethereum community that just say that you know Ether is a cryptocurrency, and they want it, and we want it to be more of a cryptocurrency. And that's something that like the Ethereum Foundation, you know, like as you, I think it's become clear, kind of doesn't even have kind of doesn't have a monopoly on ethereum messaging or even a hegemony on ethereum messaging at this point and that's a pro, like that's i mean that's a kind of direction that you know people like Molokdao and other groups are going to promote then like even like there's not much that we can do to stop them even okay. and so, so so actually i want to do another poll so if you guys mm-hmm. want to check out your phones and also for you on the live stream go to again to sli.to and I just want to ask you this question. Do you think Ethereum developers are focusing enough on the Ether price? Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll just look at the results right away because I'm just kind of curious to know what the community feels about that. Hmm. Oh, okay. So we've got a lot of don't cares. That's interesting. Oh, but no, hmm. Hmm. so there is more. There's a little bit more yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's some people who just are like, I don't know. But... Hmm. Don't cares. <laughs> it's interesting, yeah. I mean, don't care. No, no. Hmm. Okay. Well, there you have it. So no, there's all these critiques so out there. So interesting. And, and the, um, the, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Like, actually, I think it's um, I mean, like engineering for you for economic. I think also like if it depends on like how you kind of ask the question because there's. A difference between like what, the thing that I am absolutely opposed to is like for just engineering for pumps for the sake of pumps, right? Because that's just a short-term strategy that's fundamentally dishonest. The um, 
thing that I'm definitely in favor of is like not doing stupid things that would lead to the price going to zero. So one example of that would be just like having an issuance of like 100 million ether every year, right? That would like regardless of what other consequences that has, that would clearly you know, drop the price to zero and that would clearly just be terrible. Um, right, so I want to I want to actually ask you about something somewhat similar because obviously we've gone through this recent bubble, this mm-hmm. ICO mania. Mm-hmm. I've heard you express relief that that's over. Mm-hmm. But I'm just curious to know, like, how do you feel about the fact that a large part of Ethereum's success came from the fact that it was used as this mm-hmm. launchpad for the ICO craze? And that's definitely uh, true, to, uh, true to some extent. Um, it's... I mean, to some extent, though, like ICOs are something that just was is going to happen on some platform, regardless of uh, like what platform it ultimately was. And you know, before Ethereum, there was Mastercoin and other things happen uh, and other things happening on Bitcoin. Then, before Ethereum launched, um, there was MadeSafe, and there were all these other projects that were launching, and they were using like kind of Bitcoin-based like, second layers. So. I feel like that boom would have happened regardless of what platform it ultimately would have happened on. Um, and that it's definitely a kind of complex situation that's had a lot of, of costs and, and benefits to it. I mean, one of the big benefits is just a lot of interesting projects getting funded. And... You know, there's a lot of big Ethereum projects that had token sales. There's a lot of uh, projects uh, that did not have token sales, but that had tokens that launched in other ways. So Maker being one example. And the fact that they have money for development is, I think, like a very, uh, just a good and useful thing. Um, but then what about then, the fact that there were that whole other that whole other, that whole other space yeah i mean that's and- like that, that's definitely one of the biggest costs that there were these uh, projects that were just scammy there were projects that were like marketing just way over the top and excessively there were projects <clears throat> that would uh, Run up beside me, like take a uh, just take a selfie, run away, and then claim that you know, oh, I took a selfie. Like f- found, founder of um, en- Engine Q Coin took a selfie with Vitalik Buterin. Please buy our ICO. Right, or and like you were an advisor. I even was listed as an advisor. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that I'm like apparently an advisor for. I mean, there's also I mean, even, you know, my 10,000 Instagram accounts. <laughs> They're all scams. Um, they're, yeah, and, and those are definitely like, very unfortunate things. I and mean, if there was a magic wand that could have like shut them all, uh, them all down, that probably would have been better. But you well, know, magic wands don't exist. Speaking of things that shut things down, so... Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, that over the past year, the SEC has said in various ways that Ether in its current form is not a security. Yeah. However, from, from the way they phrase their remarks, it seems that they likely would consider the Ethereum crowd sale as violating securities laws. Hmm. Are you worried about an enforcement action against you or the other founders? It's something, I mean, so far we haven't uh, seen anything uh, su- Anything suggesting anything like that happening? Um, so, I mean, we definitely have like our um, lawyers and legal teams, and they're definitely like, watching the situation closely. But so far, we haven't seen any reason to be worried for ourselves. And is that something you stress about at all? Um, and I would say no. I mean, I'm probably mainly listening to our lawyers and legal teams at this point. Hmm. Hmm. 
All right. So um, I wanted to to just go back to what you were saying about Glenn Weil. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here you have created this fifteen billion dollar mm-hmm. ecosystem, but. Uh, I, from somebody who you know is trying to cover what you're doing, I definitely know you have your hands in a lot more things than actually just Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I recently interviewed Glenn, he actually said that um, you are his closest collaborator. So what are you doing with him and how does it relate to your work with Ethereum? Yeah, in, uh, in terms of what I've done with him, um, I've, uh, I sent him a, a review of Radical Markets. I wrote a review of Radical Markets that's still like, sitting there in the big, long 5,000-word thing on Vitalik.ca. I um, in, worked with him on the uh, liberal radicalism paper. I uh, reviewed uh, some of his recent posts on you know, why I'm not a capitalist, why I'm not a statist, and like, oh, all of those other things. Um, the, the in, in terms of kind of concrete items, those are pr- probably the biggest, but I guess more generally, and like I'll actually be touching on this topic a lot in two days because I'm going to Radical Exchange right after this, um, but it's... Um, I view the kind of cypherpunk tradition and the uh, radical exchange tradition that Glenn Weil has created so quickly as being and if two definitely different movements, but that, that are still kind of ultimately going after fairly similar goals. And the way that I would describe those goals are as being this attempt to kind of synthesize kind of valuing, you know, things like freedom and, and openness and kind of systems where you know, like every, and if everyone is on is on an equal footing and there's no special privilege with uh, an understanding of the value of community and in the um and as far as kind of understanding the value of value of community goes like that's definitely not a kind of universal in the uh, cryptocurrency space by any means right but that's it de- like there's definitely things that kind of ethereum space has kind of cultivated that are almost a reaction to things that other that other people in the and other cryptocurrency communities have said you know there's people that literally go around and saying things like oh you know there is no like insert coin name here community there's just a bunch of people that happen to use the same coin and that's what matters and like i consider those kind of ideas totally crazy and that's something that so like i feel like you know there's the yeah, kind of cypherpunk tradition, especially kind of 10 to 20 years ago, started out as something kind of very individualistic. But then as it started moving into money and moving into crypto, moving into cryptocurrency and moving into these other blockchain applications, it's um, started to realize that, like, for example, even on a technical level, like money is a much more kind of inherently social thing than, for example, like end-to-end encrypted messaging. And so, you know, that's and because of that, you just, you know, it's unavoidably have to deal with proof of work, proof of stake, soft forks, UASFs, hard forks, governance, Reddit censorship interfering with governance, and like this entire mess of messy human issues. And like coming up with ways of kind of dealing with that, mitigating the and minimizing the worst of it, like trying to benefit from the best of it, is a kind of journey that at least the part of the kind of cypherpunk community that's kind of made its way into in both Ethereum and other communities as well, like including Zcash and including in all of these other projects, probably in 
you know, even though I disagree with their approach, including like the, the, the projects doing on-chain governance and so forth as well. And then on the radical exchange side, you know, you have people that are like basically, you know, see things like Brexit and Trump and all of that, and that are basically kind of dissatisfied with like pretty much every kind of major major political trend because they all kind of miss different parts of the picture and are trying to kind of come up with a new approach that like satisfies the kind of ideals of uh, what a lot of people wanted in, like out of uh, capitalism for example and even out of socialism but does them but does both like, both in a way that and at least as they perceive avoid, avoids the pitfalls of both of the earlier approaches and so like there's definitely a lot of kind of common strands in terms of people's goals but there's common strand there's kind of differences in terms of people's approaches there's differences in opinions so like for example like Glenn you know he has this line where he dislikes blo- uh, blockchains because they formalize property without formal- formalizing um, individuality and that's um, whereas um, in our space, you know, we have um, Andreas Antonopoulos writing this uh, article a couple of years ago where he literally says, like, against identity and reputation systems. Huh. So like, that's one example of, like, a, one of the biggest probably wedges between those two. But you know, there's, in, if they're not literally the same community, there's always going to be wedges. And it's uh, interesting to try to kind of navigate these two different approaches and see what they can learn from each other. So one other thing that I want to, because I mean, this is like, when I look at what you're doing with Glenn, it sort of feels like you're kind of branching out just from Ethereum to, you know, trying to do things in the wider world. And when I look at sort of where things are going in the wider world and how that intersects with cryptocurrency, Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm reading a lot these days about this fear about the future of work, you know, automation, robots, AI. And there's now these proposals around things like universal basic income. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here we work in this space where we have like digital money and ways to dispense of it. So, so, or to disperse it. So how do you think blockchains will affect the future of work for good and for bad? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, first of all, if we want, uh, in, like coming up with better solutions to this whole like identity, reputation, and kind of more generally formal like formalizing community is definitely something that we need to have more work on if we want to have more high impact uh, blockchain applications in these areas. Um, because <clears throat> like without that, you know, you can't uh, distinguish uh, like ten thousand regular people from one rich guy with ten million dollars, and that's just going to limit you in just so many different ways. So, but if you can like you solve that problem, then potentially you, know, you could make uh, a lot of progress. So, and I think in the shorter term, like the main value of these uh, systems isn't so much in kind of formalizing like specific new mechanisms that like entire large portions of uh, society will be you know, like building on instead of uh, instead of corporations or governments or whatever I think like in the near term the thing that's more viable is basically <clears throat> blockchains as a way of making it just easier easier for more people around the world to kind of connect into the global economy and also easier for different kind of existing projects to kind of interface and interconnect with each other more. So one of the kind of pitches that I talk about is the idea that and like 
you can see that people are starting to explore this very concretely in the gaming industry. This idea that you have like a bunch of small companies that, and then there's like there's a big incumbent, and then there's some small companies, and the small companies by themselves have a hard time. But then if they can create some kind of kind of common market or interoperability between them, so in the case of gaming, moving out or trading assets between games, in the case of Something like financial systems, there will be these different projects, the, the different wallets or different providers or whatever, being able to talk to each other. And by doing that, they can like basically share network effects and kind of stand up against larger monopolists without, you know, themselves kind of coalescing into a monopolist. And I think that's uh, a path that's also in a very socially valuable. But then in the longer term, like as more things happen on blockchains and as maybe uh, things we have more data, more data sources, we have more kind of formalization of things like uh, reputation and, and identity and community than some of these kind of grander and more idealistic visions can also kind of start seeing uh, start to see the light and we can really use blockchains as a platform for just experimenting in like very very different ways of people organizing with each other so i think like those are definitely all kind of good consequences um in terms of uh consequences that i'm worried about um i mean near term just the whole like i you know the dark side of the ico mania basically and kind of in a more gen- like, and in a more generalized sense also like scams hacks thefts like all of that side is definitely uh, is definitely an issue that i think we def- we could be doing doing more to try to uh, kind of fight um mitigate and fight off um, yeah, I was listening to um, this other podcast. I think it was Software Engineering Daily. Um, mm-hmm. Haseeb Qureshi did a like an essay where he just read it, and it was amazing. Mm-hmm. But it was funny because um, he was saying that he feels like in the crypto space, we're sort of learning all the lessons that mm-hmm. the traditional financial system already learned, and that's why they have all those regulations in place. And so um, it's just yeah. funny. But actually, that is another question I wanted to ask you about. Mm-hmm. And I think this will be our last question, actually, before we do some Q&A. Mm-hmm. Um, We've seen this fascinating DeFi trend that's mm-hmm. been taking off in Ethereum. I'm a, I'm a little bit obsessed with it. Like mm-hmm. for those of you who didn't mm-hmm. notice, I you know did Zero X and Dharma and DYDX and Compound and MakerDAO. I'm super super interested in all this stuff. Um, but some of the the ideas that are being put mm-hmm. into place have the echoes of the financial mm-hmm. yeah. uh, moves that led us into the 2008 financial crisis. So what's I, your take on that? I don't know if you saw like maybe one to two weeks ago on Twitter, but there was this one project that was promising like 5x leverage with crypto-based uh, derivatives, and I like went on there and criticized them. And like eventually, I thought they had like, some pretty reasonable in- answers to my critiques, but I think even still, like it's importance to do things like that and kind of set the expectation that like we're not here to build things that break um and i think i mean having the dow happen like so early in the history definitely had some positive effects because it's definitely kind of did create like a necessary sense um, a sense of kind of fear and caution Though and now it's been almost three years, and like it's, I mean, that's definitely not something that's going to last forever. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, and I'm, 
Like I'm definitely watching the kind of the, the, the whole DeFi space with kind of with interest and fascination, and you know I've been like very supportive of like, Uniswap, for example, all the way through. Oh, hi, Dan, stand up. Hey. Um, Unconfirmed yeah. last week. That was a great episode. Yeah, I've been. I mean, you know, like things things like Maker. Um, it's just a project that's useful and that's uh, so refreshing and great. Um, you know, things and auger and so forth but you know on the other hand it, it, something will break eventually um actually i mean there's two kinds of breaking right so like one kind of breaking is the kind of breaking the financial systems breaking that people are more familiar with which is uh, oh you have these derivatives and then you know because people underestimate the fat tail suddenly things all go in one direction at the same time then some things break and then other and go bankrupt then other things that depended on those things not breaking also break and you have these cascades and suddenly like a whole bunch of systems just fly wildly out of people's expectations the other kind of things breaking that I'm also worried about is uh, smart contract code risk. So, like, for example, this was another case of uh, actually myself criticizing our own community on Twitter, which, I, and by the way, like, I, I do think Ethereans should criticize other Ethereans, both on Twitter and other platforms. Like, it's definitely healthy to, you know, have the kind of antidotes to the extremes of booster culture and all that but basically where i am someone was trying to say something like oh you know why don't why doesn't pretty much everyone like take their money out of their bank accounts and put it into like a die earning interest on compound because that pays better rates like why why would you not just get a free three percent and i'm like excuse me free like you really believe that contract has um are you really that that confident that that contract has less than a three percent chance a year um, a year of having a bug in it and i mean i honestly don't know how to measure the chances those contracts have bugs in them but i there is definitely like i think more people like, far too many people that round those risks down to zero yeah well i was going to ask you about that because you know um, more than two percent of all ether is locked up in MakerDAO in these collateralized mm-hmm. depositions and or depositions and i just worry or i just wonder do you worry that that could pose a systemic risk to ethereum like if there's a bug mm-hmm. or also, there's this regulatory risk because the mm-hmm. SEC has been making noise that perhaps stablecoins mm-hmm. like MakerDAO could run afoul of regulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and from a kind of contract um, security point of view, um, there's definitely kind of reasons to be to be more optimistic this time around like basically because MakerDAO does seem to be like doing things much more slowly and methodically than say like the DAO did. And you know it's and it's it's taken them a really uh, long time to build everything out and launch and like you know like some people have quibbles with their like variable naming styles but otherwise like it's still like on on balance it seems I mean, it does seem like they're doing thing doing things well but at the same time you know the risk is non-zero and it it, it could happen and ultimately. If you're doing a system that's interesting, the risk of things breaking is always going to be non-zero. The, um, on the uh, legal side, and ultimately a big part of that just as a, a question to a, a question for the MakerDAO team. But going beyond that, like if 
a very large class of uh, things that people want to do on Ethereum like, get ruled to be like, basically legally impossible, then that's definitely going to be a very significant lo- uh, significant loss to Ethereum. Though, and ultimately, I think it's also important to note that Ethereum's value is definitely not limited to one sector. Like, even if this financial stuff doesn't happen, there's still ENS, there's still... Like and I made that tweet storm a few months ago on uh, non-financial applications of the Ethereum blockchain, where I talked about um, things like certificates and uh, key revocation and identity and like, all all of these other things. And I think all of those things are valuable too. Um, and like it's like, this like. The system is definitely going to be kind of keep on evolving and keep on being used by someone, like no matter what happens. But there's definitely things that we can do to minimize uh, the risk that people will get hurt in the meantime. And I definitely you kind know, of strongly support like everyone in the community taking it on as a uh, common responsibility to do some of those things. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I think that's a perfect place to end. It's sort of like just sort of where we are in the system right now. So we're going to actually queue up our first video question that was pre-submitted by listeners. And this is a super fun one. Uh, this comes from Ben from LA. If those of you who listened to my 100th episode where listeners contributed, this guy wrote and recited a whole poem and it was like a few minutes and it was all about crypto and my podcast. I mean, it was amazing. So if you have not listened to the episode yet, his poem was a true masterpiece. I highly recommend you check it out. And he submitted a super fun video for today's recording. If you there, Vitalik B had a Lambo time machine to join the early cypherpunk scene. What advice would you give Satoshi? Wait. Okay. I was just trying to tell. Like, is this thing mixing back to the future and Star Wars metaphors? But like, oh. (laughs) Okay. So, what advice would you give Satoshi? (laughs) Um. GitHub.com slash Ethereum slash ETH 2.0 dash specs. <laughs> um, Wait, are you serious? Like, you would say this is the advice I'd give Satoshi, like, build Ethereum 2.0? I mean, it's, I do think it's a, it's a good architecture, and that's what. <laughs> um, um, like, you might as well build a good architecture as being the first thing. <laughs> um, I mean, otherwise, I. Th- no, in my. If we want kind of smaller and more concrete and more concrete uh, one sentence things, um, then I think um, and it, it definitely the, first of all, like Satoshi had a really hard job because he just could not have predicted you know, which way the ecosystem would have went, uh, which way the um, like the, just the fact that it would turn into anything more than a science experiment and all these other things. So I think like on a technical level, at least kind of suggesting a path that opens the door to upgradability to like in proof to, to proof of stake and to, and to a kind of more powerful virtual machines and to all Wait, these and other things. By that, do you mean some sort of like governance mechanism? Or? Not governance. I mean, not a governance mechanism. Just a kind of just a technical design that makes it easier yeah. to upgrade. So, um, from a uh, kind of 
social point of view, I mean, definitely to kind of pay attention more to the more to the uh, governance um, layer as something that could end up end up failing and getting captured. Um, like I think, I mean, Satoshi basically just disappeared and kind of kind of handed it off to Gavin, and then you know, things went from there, and then they began to spiral out of control a few years later. Yeah. And I think actually. Ooh, here's a good one. Um, set explicit norms in writing. So, like for example, and like and set kind of an explicit like, direction in writing. So, like for example, one of the things that we did for Ethereum early on is we said, you know, we want we are going to do proof of stake and charting, and we've said that even all the way since 2014 and 2015, mm. and that helped because it like basically creates this community agreement that you know yes ethereum at this time is a chain that had, that technically evolves and you know yes this is rough like this the spirit like proposals that change it in the spirit of those ideas that are saying should be adopted and i think um that uh kind of social contract of uh like uh, of technical improvement and like even possible of, of technical improvement in particular directions is something that that has ended up serving us very well, and it would it would have also you know, it's probably also possibly prevented um, situations that could have otherwise led to arguments that could have led to stagnation. Like it could have been the case like if those things had not been said, like there could have been a much larger contingent basically saying, you know, hey, screw proof of stake and screw sharding, let's just keep the chain exactly as it is, or like, let's go in some totally different direction. Right. Yeah. So I think um like trying to set a yeah, more a more explicit kind of path for future improvements is definitely something that he yeah like, that could have probably ex- very significantly improved the outcome. Okay. Like, I can tell why he didn't, right? Like, when he launched the thing, even in the white paper or somewhere, it said, you know, when something like, when the system is launched, like, the rules are set in stone forever, which ended up totally not being true. But, you know, that's, yeah. this is uh, what you would say if you were someone who just thinks that it is going to be a science experiment and not a multi-million dollar cryptocurrency. Yes. Okay, so let's, we'll do the second listener video. Hi, I'm Chandan Lodha from San Francisco, part of the Coin Tracker team. Thanks, hmm. Vitalik, for taking these questions and Laura for organizing. The hmm. question has two parts. One, what do you think is going to be the first mainstream use case for cryptocurrency? And second, what do you think about Facebook's initiative to create a stable coin and messaging apps like WhatsApp? Thanks. Ooh. Um, so, as for the First um, one, I would say, like things I am kind of near-term optimistic about include, I mean, first of all, in the, the decentralized finance space. Second of all, the um, uh, ga- ga- uh, gaming, and like I do mean gaming as in like v- you know, like video games, not as in like a euphemism for casinos or whatnot. Um, third. Um, the on the non-financial side, like identity, credentials, key revocation, and all of those things, um, just even you know like the the HTC phone, like with social key recovery and all that, for example, like has made me more more optimistic that things like that could be done. Like basically, it seems like there are kind of platforms that are launching that could just like deploy these identity solutions. Um, Fourth, 
um, possibly um, in sh- an interesting one I, like I, I got mentioned from the community and um, is uh, parametric insurance. So this is basically insurance that says if uh, some extreme weather event happens, then pay me $500. And this seems like the reason why it's interesting is because, you know, first of all, it's very useful and it's particularly the sort of thing that would be useful in thing like developing environments and um, economies and like generally kind of un, like fin- under financially included communities and all these other kind of groups of people that you know we, we have ultimately wants to help but also because it's like clearly actually implementable because it just all that it requires is a data source and you know now we have oracleize we have augur oracles we have all of these uh, other projects that are trying to make oracles at kind of different levels of uh, you know centralization and decentralization spectrum so the tools are totally there to build it um <clears throat> so and you know there is this project called hurricaneguard.io that's been like actually building out the thing and the team like i think one of them is based in puerto rico the other two are ba- uh, the other is a base somewhere else so i do hope to see more things like that happening and then from there i guess we'll see and Facebook mm. coin? Yeah, Facebook coin. Um, <laughs> I honestly like don't know enough about it to be able to comment. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll do the third. Mm-hmm. We'll do the third video then. Hi, Laura. My name is Frank Hutley. I'm from the UK, uh, where I run a blockchain consulting service called FH Blockchain Consulting. Uh, I've been a big fan of Unchained for some time. Uh, my question for Vitalik is, what would be taught at Vitalik Ruter in university? So the, <coughs> the sound on this video is a bit low, but he asked what would be taught at Vitalik Ruter in university, which is a cool question, because you didn't even go to college. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, <coughs> the, um, hmm. I mean, I guess, like, expand... Like, there's different ways to interpret the question because there's, like, things that people should learn in general, but then there's things that more people should learn, but if literally everyone in the world focused on them, that would be a disaster, but, like, my goal is, but, but really, not necessarily everyone needs to learn all of them. Um, I... Like, one way to answer it is to, like, just say, you know, like, the... Things like cryptography and econ- and you know, like economics and all of the things that that like none of the technical things of this particular space, but I think that's almost not a very interesting answer because like you can teach different thing different things, but it matters like in my experience it matters more how things are taught, and I feel like there's ways like society is definitely. A, it, society's tools of education are like, very far from perfect, and there's ways to improve them that at least I feel like I've been trying to kind of pine do for the spa- for the spaces that uh, that I happen to kind of be more of an expert in. But there's uh, but they could totally be expanded to other spaces as well. So, for example, even when I was a Bitcoin Magazine writer, I quickly seized upon this uh, kind of seeming like seeming gap that we have where on the one hand we have like popular science articles that are just terrible to the point of being incorrect on the other hand we have I used to be a science writer just FYI (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
Mm, not all popular science theorem articles. The um, on the other hand, you have I mean, all of all of fans in a different group of people, which is um, basically math papers, which and like computer anything written in latex, um, even Wikipedia, like that category of things, which just tends to seemingly just place zero or negative value on comprehensibility. Um, and then, you know, you have that and you have that, and there's this wide gap in between of things that are like, basically materials that actually um, just actually tell you what's going on and actually, like, semi-rigorously explain things and, like, show, you know, here's, like, here's the actual math, here's how the thing works, and now you can understand how the thing works to the point where you can build it, but do so in a way that also is actually understandable and is relatable to people who have not taken the exact same series of university courses as the author. Um, Wait, so I'm going to have to stop your answer because we've got a um, bunch of questions that you all submitted on Slido and we're running out of time. So I'm just going to ask mm -hmm. maybe one or two. Sure. The top voted question is a fun one though, which is who was your favorite troll in the Ethereum ecosystem? Ooh. <laughs> um... Can I see Kevin Pham? <laughs> you know, I, maybe I'd have to go with the same. I actually wrote an article about him before I was even into crypto. So that's just kind of a, we have a history, I guess you could say. Um, all right. Next one. What is the most promising ETH competitor in your eyes? Ooh. Um. I know you guys should all be journalists. Yeah, no, I mean, um, in terms of like things trying to do like general computation, I mean, I've, I, and I tend to find Affinity pretty technically competent. Um, I've, um... For those of you who didn't hear, he was also on my show. I don't know if mm -hmm. you would use the word competent to describe that interview, but anyway. Yeah. You know, Dominic's got like really great stuff on uh, things like uh, threshold signatures and, and distributed key generation. And like he does real, like, Definity does can, like, really contribute to kind of the leading edge of the space, and that's yeah, something that I no, really respect. When I was learning yeah. about like the beacon chain and all that, I was like, oh, this sounds mm -hmm. like Definity. Yeah. So I Although think there's a lot I of think like, Dominic and I, we don't want to use the word competitor. We use the yeah, possibly euphemism, possibly, but possibly kind of aspirational term sister network. Hmm. Okay. All right. So we are we are basically out of time. This is sort of a weird place to end where we're talking about Definity, but um, it has been so fabulous having you. Um, so thank you so much for coming. Uh, to learn more about Vitalik and Ethereum, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. This first Unchained Live was a massive undertaking. I want to thank Vitalik again for agreeing to be grilled by me on stage and also flying out here. Yeah. I'd also like to extend my gratitude to Columbia Journalism School for hosting us. I'd like to thank our venue sponsor, Quantstamp, for helping to make it happen. Mm. I also want to give a huge shout out to my event coordinator, Cynthia Helen. Mm. Cynthia, back there, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. She went above and beyond in every way imaginable to make sure this event was a hit. We had a short turnaround time, and she really threw herself into the work and endured a lot of unexpected and last-minute surprises. Mm. And she really took care of everything so I could focus on this interview. Big thanks also to Raylan Golapali, Stephanie Blyer, Stephanie Cohen, Liv Bear, Brittany Newman, AD Catering, Kaylin Buckley, and Tracy Ballant. And let me just point out, this was an all-woman team. Totally unplanned. Um, if you have friends.
friends who missed out on the first Unchained Live, let them know they can check out the video of the live stream, which will be at facebook.com slash Unchained Podcast. If I can, I will try to also download this for the Unchained Podcast website because I have been getting tweets saying, I already deleted my Facebook account, which I should have thought of before. You know, I'm, I'm new with this. Um, if you are not yet signed up for my email newsletter, go to unchainedpodcast.com right now to get my thoughts on the top crypto stories of the week, plus previews of exclusive podcast content. And for the true early birds, my book is coming out in two years. So keep your eye out in 2021. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Rayleigh Gull and Polly, Fractal Recording, Jenny Joseph and Danielis, and Rich Straffolino. For those of you in the live audience, please stick around. We're going to continue the cocktail hour. And for everybody on the live stream and also here on the audience and also on my podcast, because we'll be releasing that there, thank you for watching and listening. Mm-hmm.